You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 29th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Talks continue to extend the Israel-Hamas truce now in its final day. The UK's reasons for picking an entirely avoidable spat with Greece and how smartly do we need our MPs to dress. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nadine Bachelor-Hunt and Stephen DL will discuss today's big stories and will be in Singapore for the World Architecture Fair. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, political reporter for Politics Home, and by Stephen DL, Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor. Hello to you both. Good evening. Um, Nadine, you were confessing earlier in the waiting room that you may be toying with going to Birmingham, which is a reasonable enough thing for somebody basically from Birmingham to want to do, (laughs) but you have specific reasons for going, possibly. Yes, to go to the Birmingham Comic Con. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd. It's one of those things that I don't people expect to, to know about me but i'm <laughs> well they do in, now yeah and i am anxiously awaiting the season two trailer of house of the dragon i'm regularly checking youtube every day to see if it's been dropped so yeah it's a kind of guilty pleasure of mine being an ad um for those of us unfamiliar with comic-con and for those of us frankly unlikely ever to become familiar <laughs> with comic-con what what actually goes on at it once you get to it so there's lots of stalls selling um, merchandise for various things. You've got a lot of comic book stuff, a lot of things from like House of Dragon, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, all of that sort of stuff. Sometimes you'll get um, the bigger ones, so the San Diego one and the London one. You may have panels of people that are in TV shows like Game of Thrones and they'll talk about the season and the filming and what they think of the characters. It's just a nerd fest and a lot of people tend to turn up dressed as their <laughs> favourite comic book characters or fantasy character or whatever and uh, are you, are you working on a costume? I'm not. I feel like I should dress up, but I just feel like I, I don't know if I'd look in the room and be like, what have I done? Uh, is, 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 is part of the appeal that this is an event you can go to knowing that there won't be a huge queue for the ladies? Uh, yes, there is. Although there is a big queue to get in. Um, so there are priority tickets you can buy. But yeah, there, there, there probably won't be a very long queue for the ladies' toilet, which is, which is nice. Kind of, like, kind of like Parliament in some ways. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that, that writes itself, angry nerds in dressed up weirdly. Actually, a subject to which we will be returning uh, later in the show. Uh, Stephen, are you tempted by the thought of a, a weekend at Comic-Con? Well, funnily enough, when uh, Nadine started talking about Comic-Con before the show, I thought, but that's the communist economic bloc. It took me back to my days covering the Soviet Union, since I'm that old. Uh, and it was when the, the, the various East European countries, which were whipped together by the Soviet Union after the Second World War, uh, used to get together and pretend that their economies were in really good shape. Um, and, of course, they weren't. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why, in 1989, the dominoes collapsed in Eastern Europe, and then 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. I'm, I'm having a hard time bankrupt. trying to figure out which Comic-Con sounds like less fun. <laughs> Um, I think the older one, yeah, the one I'm talking about. Uh, Well, we will start the show proper in the Middle East, as we have been so often recently. Talks are ongoing in Qatar that may prolong the present ceasefire in Gaza, now in its sixth and theoretically final day. Further releases of the 
161 hostages still believed to be in Gaza are said to be imminent, though Hamas is claiming that three Israeli hostages, kindergarten teacher Shiri Bibas and her two young children, were killed in one of Israel's airstrikes. Elsewhere, Israel claims to have killed what it described as two senior terror operatives in a raid near Janin on the West Bank. Palestinian authorities claim two children were also killed. Um, Nadine, first of all, it does seem quite surprising, given the pre-truce rhetoric from Israel in particular, that the ceasefire has held this long. Do you imagine that it will hold much longer? I think that there's an appetite now in Israeli society to see more of these hostages released, particularly given some of the stories that have, have been coming out from some of the ones that have been released. I think one of the, I think it was a, a 13, 12 or 13 year old boy was talking about, telling his family about how he was forced to watch videos of the, the massacre on the 7th of October and was beaten if he tried to talk and all these sorts of things. I think as these stories come out, we see some of the hostages <coughs> malnourished. The pressure on the government to do whatever it can to bring these people home is growing. So I think there is an appetite there within Israeli society to, to extend the truce, to extend the ceasefire, at, if it means getting hostages is out. The challenge that Netanyahu has, though, is um, Ben Gavir, one of the, the very far right, uh, one of the very far right ministers in his coalition government, has said that you know if some of the reports circulating are true that Israel would um, have a full ceasefire in exchange for all the hostages, it could jeopardise the government. And someone like Ben Gavir is basically suggesting he'd leave the government and then Israel would have another non-functioning government and potentially another election. So it's a very fraught situation, but the appetite is definitely there in Israeli society to see these hostages come home and I can't even imagine the things that they've, they've all they've been through. Uh, Stephen, nevertheless, Benjamin Netanyahu has reiterated again today that the full permanent lasting ceasefire is not an option. He said there is no situation in which we do not go back to fighting until the end. But is that just what you would say if you're him because obviously if he goes out and announces yeah fine we've made our point uh, it's all over there is no there is then no reason for Hamas to keep releasing hostages indeed there wouldn't be and and it leaves him then in in a, in, the middle, in no man's land i mean he's he's you know he's either got to carry on with the war or sort of step down and as nadim was just saying he's probably going to lose a government if he sort of were to stop now so he's between a rock and a hard place um, but I think that it's, uh, I agree totally, that the, the um, uh, pressure from Israelis, ordinary Israelis, who are now, <coughs> now they're seeing the, um, uh, the hostages, some of the hostages coming back. And I think they definitely, you know, they want everyone back. So I think there will be pressure to, to continue that. But also it's perhaps international opinion is actually having an effect on mm. Netanyahu and the government because I think everyone's been shocked by the... The, the way in which Israel has gone into this. I mean, if you look at the figures, yes, it's terrible that 1,200 uh, Israelis died on the 7th of October. Mm-hmm. But according to figures from Hamas, admittedly, um, 15,000 Palestinians have been killed uh, in the Israeli uh, airstrikes and the uh, now the land uh, operation. So I, I think there's, there is pressure on, on all sides, but I think there would be huge sighs of relief if this pause in fighting does continue. Uh, Nadine, on the subject of that international pressure, it has been widely supposed for a good few weeks now that the United States has been making it clear to Israel on the quiet that their patience with Israel's response in Gaza is limited. Uh, In the last 24 hours, 
Joe Biden in particular has really stopped doing this on the quiet. Yesterday, he tweeted in favor of the two-state solution, reminding everybody that America still saw that as the best way forward. And today, which is an extraordinary statement, really, he said Hamas unleashed a terrorist attack because they fear nothing more than Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in peace. To continue down the path of terror, violence, killing and war is to give Hamas what they seek. We can't do that. Now, the intended audience for that is presumably Benjamin Netanyahu, yes? Yeah, I think it comes after um, the the fact that I think the Israeli Knesset was discussing a budget that would have pumped essentially millions of shekels um, into West Bank, uh, settlement expansion in the West Bank. Mm. Um, and I think Netanyahu um, was the effect of, you know, I know... Uh, um, Biden very well and I'm the only one that can stop a future Palestinian state and all this sort of rhetoric has been kind of going around within the Israeli political sphere you know it's still functioning as, as, a, as a government with a, with a, with a parliament um, and, I, I, and I think there was this sense maybe potentially that Israeli politicians thought that Americans wouldn't be listening or wouldn't be watching but you know the, the fundamental premise of, of, of Biden's support has constantly been you know, we, need a, we need a two-state solution Netanyahu then telling you know politicians domestically don't worry we, we're never going to see a Palestinian state and these settlements are going to carry on are directly at odds um, with Biden obviously politically you know Netanyahu has aligned himself with the very far right and Biden is not a far right politician so, and, yeah. and indeed he has a voluble wing of his own party which is very much not on Israel's side exactly. on this exactly so Biden is a, is, you know, is a moderate in many ways Netanyahu and his acolytes in the government absolutely aren't so mm. the, you're seeing I think increasingly that tension kind of there because ideologically they're completely different. It's just that you know America and Israel are kind of in lockstep on this this specific issue about the future of Israel, and um, the establish you know defeating Hamas and and then and then Israeli state state security, but. Fundamentally, on a kind of principle level, Netanyahu and Biden are very, very different, and I think you're starting to see that more as the kind of internal politics in each country plays out and on on the on the national stage, on the international stage. Uh, Stephen, just finally on this one, for all Biden's enthusiasm for the two-state solution, and for all his increasingly clear non-enthusiasm for how Israel is going about sorting this out, do we really anticipate that as he faces re-election, he is going to want to spend the time the energy, the political and diplomatic capital necessary for a president of the United States to get properly into a Middle East peace process? Because there's no other way this happens without a president of the United States getting properly into it. It's the kind of thing you can imagine appealing to Biden. Maybe you think, yeah, second term, nothing to lose, could be a Nobel Peace Prize in this at the other end. That'd be a nice way to go out. But he is rather preoccupied elsewhere. He has to be preoccupied. I mean, you know, we're already talking... It's only a year until the, the next election, but the, the cycle is going on. Uh, it looks as if it could well be um, Biden versus Trump again. And um, Trump has been doing very well in the polls recently. Uh, you know, he can't take his eye off that ball. And if there is another ball on, on the pitch that uh, that is Israel, um, he's got to be looking at that as well. So the sooner he can put that ball into touch, i.e., that get you know, persuade Israel that they actually need to calm down and and um, and and talk and talk about the two-state solution in particular, uh, then the better. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime very soon, and that it really does create a problem for Biden.
Well, to Russia now, where finding further means of stifling freedom of expression requires at this point an amount of imagination. The zany funsters at Russia's Interior Ministry believe they have cracked it, however. They are reportedly planning to impose upon such foreigners as are still willing to visit the requirement of signing a loyalty agreement under which the foreigners would vouchsafe not to criticise present Russian policy, such as launching insane invasions of neighbouring nations under absurd pretexts, or discredit aspects of Soviet history, like, for example, imprisoning half of Europe and deporting generations to the salt pile. Um, That's me out, I suspect. Um, Stephen, what really is the imaginable point of this? Well, I think this is going to take me out as well from visits (laughs) to Russia. Um, It it is bizarre, I think, is the kindest word, that the the more we see these days of of what Russia is doing, um, the the more it it goes down the route of 1984. I mean, it, it is... It's it's horrible. It's terrible. I mean, it, it, they, they, they seem not to have understood that it was a satire and are reading it more as an instruction manual. Uh, absolutely, that, it does. It does look like that because every day it seems that there are um, that there are more and more bizarre stories coming out of Russia, and, and this one. Um, my immediate thought of this was, what about my old friend Steve Rosenberg from the BBC, who I think is doing a fantastic job in very Indeed difficult so. circumstances, um, and he is. You know, he talks about the war. He doesn't. He says you know, the Russians call it a special military operation, but then he talks about the war. Well, this loyalty agreement would stop that sort of talk, um, and and therefore he could well be expelled, um, as indeed his colleague Sarah Rainsford was um, two years ago. Um, so it, it seems to be a way completely of Russia shutting itself off from the rest of the world, even more than it's done already, um, which is very sad. Um, uh, because the more that Russia shuts itself off, the more that Putin's uh, unpleasant, um, I, I hesitate to call it an ideology, but his ideas of, of that the West is out to get us and, and that's what Russians are bombarded with all the time on their own media, uh, the more that that sinks in and the more dangerous that is. I mean, it, this is a classic situation now where um, the two sides need to talk. Um, I mean, obviously, the classic situation is for Russia to pull out of Ukraine and stop the war that they started, which, as you say, is totally unjustifiable. Um, There's no sign of that happening soon, but apparently there are some sort of context in the background. But the more they they do these lunatic ideas of saying, oh, Russians, uh, Westerners mustn't, foreigners mustn't criticise us... um, the, the the more the further apart that the, the two sides become, it's crazy. Uh, uh, Nadine, Stephen has hinted there at a possible uh, utility of such a rule from Russians, Russia's perspective anyway, which is as a means of deterring or silencing journalists, because no no foreign reporter uh, worth anything is going to sign any such thing, except with possibly uh, their fingers crossed behind their back. Uh, and this news also comes on the same day that uh, Evan. Gerskovich, the Wall Street report, Wall Street Journal, rather reporter, who is held uh, captive in Russia on a variety of obviously absurd charges, has had his detention extended until at least January thirtieth. Uh, I mean, are they just trying to make sure that it is more or less impossible to criticise Russia from within? I think it's kind of part of that creeping kind of clamp down on any critique in Russia. I'm surprised, to be honest, it's not happened already. And I think in many ways, for the average Russian citizen on the street that wants to hold a placard and say, you know, end the war or stop this, they've got, they, they're gagged anyway. I just think it's like almost like a, a formalising of it and kind of, you know, making it clear to the international press that if you come here, 
you know, you can't, well, I imagine <clears throat> you can't be reporting about a war, you can't be reporting anything negative. And it does, <clears throat> I think, isolate Russia more. And it is extremely sad um, and worrying, I think, because we've seen from kind of more autocratic regimes where you don't have any, any freedom of the press. I mean, it's hard to say that Russian press is free, I would say. I think mm. I, I wouldn't say that, you know, it's a kind of a flourishing example of a, of a, <coughs> of a democracy with a free press. Um, but, you know, the, the the more we see those clamps down in the press, the more you start thinking of regimes like North Korea and you just hope that it doesn't end up going down that sort of route where everything is just completely state-sanctioned. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is depressing. And as a journalist, and we're all journalists here, it's, it's, it's very sad. And Stephen, is it, and you, you did allude to this earlier, but just another, some of the wording of this decree, another manifestation of Russia's just extraordinary and enduring persecution complex. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that they're very much against, according to this law, is, and I quote, distorting the contribution of the Soviet people to the victory over fascism. Nobody denies that. Like, nobody, whatever they might think of the Soviet Union or whatever they might think of Russia, disputes, nobody serious anyway, disputes that the Soviet people sacrificed prodigiously and heroically to play their part in destroying European fascism in the 1940s. This is... I, I've never heard of anybody denying this. Indeed, and, and the idea that the Battle of Stalingrad was probably the turning point of the, of the Second World War, um, when at great loss to themselves, but the Russians did dig in and actually started to push the, the, uh, the Germans back. Um, but it, this also ties in another thing that's happened recently, is that um, back in, uh, in uh, actually last year, so the beginning of the previous academic year, the security services took over the role from the Ministry of Education in Russia of creating the new history textbook. Mm. Now, that, of course, uh, speaks volumes. And they've, in recently, they've, they've suddenly thought that, that um, they've criticised the West for trying to deny the, and, and, and mess up with, with Russia's thinking about this, about, about this textbook, which basically says that Russia won the war. Um, it doesn't mention anything like the Arctic convoys, which, uh, which carried uh, in, um, <laughs> vital supplies to, to the Soviet Union in the war. Um, it, of course, it doesn't mention another fact from the war, and we're not belittling Russia's effort at all, but a fact that the Battle of Moscow, there were more American tanks than there were Soviet tanks. Um, so, you know, the, these are all facts of history, and, and the, the, the Russian interpretation, which they're now saying that the West is trying to belittle, um, is, is, is complete nonsense. I mean, you know, when you get the security services writing your history books, you, you know you've got a problem. So, yeah, it's, it's, it just gets sadder and sadder and more and more serious. Uh, Nadine, finally on Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin's other big idea of the moment is that there aren't enough Russians. Uh, he is calling for Russian women to have seven or eight children each. Russia's population has decreased by just north of half a million people during the first year of Ukraine's war, partially due to casualties on the front line, partially due to the fact that quite a lot of young Russian men didn't really fancy it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I think if a lot of people are fleeing your country <laughs> and it's causing demographic problems then um you think you'd reevaluate no i mean i, th I feel like you know th there is an issue in the west at the moment with people not having children i mean obviously putin's got kind of his his on it but we've got british politicians I'm thinking i think miriam kate she's been talking about how she wants people to have children and i don't think she's suggesting seven or eight each no no <laughs> but she's suggesting that people have more children and i think it's part i think we see it particularly on the right it's part of this kind of push for families and you know and bolstering a kind of domestic population but there is and i as somebody i see it when i'm old 
there's not going to be enough people paying taxes to pay for me. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, ultimately these babies in 18, 19, 20 years' time will be taxpayers, will be potentially fighting, hopefully, not in a war, but for Putin, could be fighting in a war. So I think it's that kind of focus on building up economically um, and, and, and for numbers in, in this kind of situation. But it's not a huge surprise to hear, and talk, hear him talk about that, but it just, I don't know, it feels weird. Men telling women to have babies just always makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> well, here in the United Kingdom, these are exciting times for anybody who has an Anglo-Greek war on their 2024 bingo card. Earlier this week, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak huffily cancelled a meeting with visiting Greek PM Kyriakos Mitsotakis after Mitsotakis made exactly the kind of remarks about the Elgin or Parthenon marbles that literally any Greek politician visiting the U. UK would have been expected to make. For those unfamiliar with this long-running spat, a catch-up, there's a lot of old Greek sculptures in the British Museum acquired in dubious circumstances, and the Greeks rather want them back. And in Parliament today, opposition leader Sakir Starmer declined magnificently to rise above the obvious joke. First he said he'd get the NHS waiting list down. Uh, They went up. Unabashed by that, he said he'd get control of immigration. It's gone up. Following that experience, he turned his hand to bringing taxes down. And would you believe it, the tax burden is now going to be higher than ever. It is ironic that he's suddenly taken such a keen interest in Greek culture when he's clearly become the man with the reverse Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to... Maybe the Home Secretary could help me out here. So will the Prime Minister do the country a favour? We'll have to check the tape again, uh, Mr Speaker, I think. So will the Prime Minister do the country a favour, warn us what he's planning next, so we can prepare ourselves for the disaster that will inevitably follow? Reverse Midas touch, educated man. Um, Nadine, first of all, uh, Sunak cancelling the meeting with Mitsotakis, which is just extraordinary. Do you get the sense that this is a like a, a, a genuine, uh, you know, seizure of temperament by Sunak? That this is an actual genuine reflexive flounce, or did he did he map this out? Does he think this is doing him some good? I'm fascinated by this because I did classics, and um, so the the row over the Elgin marbles, the idea that a Greek PM was not going to mention this is is crazy. I mean, I, I think I, I didn't do classics, and I could have told him that the Greek PM was I mean, going to mention within, this. Within the world, world, the classics, a small world of classics, is a general <clears throat> understanding that these things are obviously eventually going to go back. Like they should not be in the UK. The best thing to do. When I was at university at Cambridge, we had um, a museum of classical archaeology, and we had casts of all the kind of, of lots and lots of different um, pieces of Greek and, and Roman architecture and, and um, sculptures and art, etc. And we used that at Cambridge. I'm pretty sure the British the British Museum could cope with a copy of the Elgar marbles. But anyway, putting that to one side, I think the response by Rishi Sunak to um, the the Greek PM's beh- to, to his to his words, I think, is a bit demonstrative of Rishi Sunak's personality. I also think um, that the the question of the Elgar marbles and generally all the stuff, to put it bluntly, the UK stole. Um, I did work on repatriation of a Benin bronze that was stolen. That was mm-hmm. at my college at university. It's a very uncomfortable conversation and it is very much a Pandora's box. And when you open it, 
it may be like, oh, well, we, you know, you can have the, the world British lining up. Does the British Museum have Pandora's box as well? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and you'll have a long list of countries, potentially every country in the world. I mean, there's very few countries we weren't in, um, you know, saying we want this back, we want this back, we want this back. So I think on one hand, you've seen a bit of Rishi Sunak's personality, the kind of like, you know, a bit offended and, and you know, Apparently there was this arrangement that he wouldn't mention the Elgar marbles and he did and now he's annoyed. I also think um, I think there's the question of Pandora's box. I also think ideology-wise, Rishi Sunak probably believes that they should belong here regardless of how they got here. So I think there's lots of different things at play here. Um, but ultimately, and as I said, I did decolonisation work on you know rest, uh, rest, colonial restitution at university. There is a kind of arc of where this, this history is going. And I think swinging against the tide with the Elgar marbles just isn't isn't going to work and I think within the next few decades we'll see a lot of things being returned all over the world loan agreements or whatever and I, yeah I just it's just quite amusing as a classicist to see it play out in this way I mean because Stephen there was absolutely no way that a Greek prime minister coming to the UK was not going to have a bit of a swing at this I mean that is the easiest win imaginable and also being more sympathetic to Mitsotakis imagine the hell he would have caught back home if he'd come to the UK and not mentioned it I mean obviously he was going to but what do you think? Do you think Rishi Sunak, at some level, uh, as he consults the immovable polls, apparently, ahead of an election that he has to call sometime in the next 14 months or so, does he think this is the culture war wedge issue that will get people voting conservative again? <laughs> I think my reaction tells you that. I, I mean, that we, we, we've, all, <laughs> we've all thought desperate things in desperate circumstances. Uh, well, well, what's really extraordinary about this one is that it took him a day and a half from the time that Mitsotakis said this in an interview with the BBC, then sort of to come around and say, well, well, I'm throwing my toys out the pram and, and I'm not going to speak to him. He can speak to the deputy prime minister, which, you know, he, he compounds the insult by saying he's not going to speak to him. And then, you know, well, he's a prime minister, but he can speak to my deputy. Um, it, 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 I, that's what I found really extraordinary about it. And following on from something Nadine said, I, I was thinking about it and I thought, 3D printing. I mean, why not just make... <laughs> The, 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 the fact is, is that you know, in the world of classics, we are, we regularly use casts of these things mm-hmm. to study. I mean, the, as I said at university, the museum there in the faculty was full of casts. As far as I, I mean, I don't think they're all originals. I'm pretty sure they weren't, and some of them were massive casts. So, the, you know, the idea that the the academic value of of seeing the seeing the cast isn't there, it just doesn't doesn't add up. I just I genuinely think that the UK has stolen put it bluntly stolen so much stuff and so much of it is stuffed into the British Museum if you start sending one thing back it it was the same thing with the Benin bronzes when I was at university and the university really panicked and didn't know what to do with it it was only when we got a new master who was the first black master of any Oxbridge college who was like right we're just sending this bronze back but you know come what may um that that went back the reality is is that there's going to be some difficult conversations happening that are going to have to go on because we're a formal formal colonial power that stole a lot of stuff and it's going to be a reckoning with the past that people desperately, particularly in politics, try and avoid and it can't be avoided. But but Rishi Sunak likes to think that he's up with technology as well. So, you know, cast, that's the old way of doing it. As I say, 3D printing. I mean, come on. There are copies they can make. Well, sticking with the subject of broadly conservative British politicians who have spent much of this week beclowning themselves for reasons surpassing understanding, there was also this. You destroyed the economy. That's absolute <laughs> Have a look at the German economy, the French economy. You know, one thing the they said... The problem is under this... One thing they said during the Brexit vote is we're going to get £350 million a week that we can redirect to the NHS 
and build new hospitals and have free care and all that never happened. In fact, spending spending spending's gone up for by 500 million. So why are we struggling with hospitals then? Because we haven't exploded. Well, there are lots of reasons. Because they don't know what they're talking about. That was prominent Brexit advocate Nigel Farage being yelled at by some people I couldn't pick out of a police lineup on some or other reality show. Um, Nadine, if we assume that everybody is in election mode and if we assume that I've actually lost count of how many times Nigel Farage has failed to get elected to the UK Parliament now, is it seven or nine? And he, and he lost one of those to somebody dressed up as a dolphin. Um, is, is it possible that he does see this as electioneering, that he thinks this is the way I will keep myself in the the good graces of the, the British electorate. Yeah, I mean, before he was announced, formally announced that he was going on the show, he did a whole thing on, on GB News. I didn't, I didn't watch GB News, I just saw it on Twitter, um, where he essentially said, you know, I want to connect with a new audience, etc. That clip alone has reminded me why I'm not watching it this year. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I see it, clips it, it, like It has also <laughs> reminded me why I have never watched it and never would. Um, but no, I, I do think it is part of his attempt to kind of appeal appeal to the masses but I don't know the, you know Matt Hancock being on I'm a Celebrity worked I think because he is there's just something when you watch him on television he's just very unusual man I think because you do just he's, he's kind of you're kind of transfixed are you suggesting not... Nigel Farage is usual <laughs> no I just think, I think with Matt Hancock it, you know it was more it was more transparent as to why he was on there. I feel like with Nigel Farage, there's layers to it. Um, and I don't know, I, you know, I think it's clearly a political kind of strategy he's got going on, but I've not been watching it um, this year, so I'm not sure how effective it's been. Um, but some of his supporters on Twitter seem pretty happy, but I also read that the, the ratings have fallen quite significantly for ITV this season, so may not have been a good business decision for the channel. Well, on the subject of falling ratings, although that suggests that their ratings were ever at any great height in the first place, one of the curious people who staffs GB News uh, has perceived some sort of conspiracy afoot. Really interesting um, revelation over the past couple of days. If you'd wondered why Nigel Farage in last night's episode had all of but 60 seconds of airtime, it may be to do with something I found out. A couple of days back, Farage was having quite an interesting conversation with his campmates about good friend and political ally Donald Trump. He was talking about their friendship, how he helped him on the campaign trail and what a good guy he was. ITV and I'm a Celebrity haven't broadcast that conversation. Uh, why? Who knows? They're yet to get back to me and explain themselves, but it certainly plays into these growing rumours and theories that they're starving Farage deliberately of airtime because lefty producers on the show don't agree with his politics. Oh, imagine caring about any of this. They, they haven't got back to you to explain themselves, sir, because they think you're an idiot wasting their time asking ridiculous questions. Um, Stephen, a nice leading question before we move mercifully on. Should anybody who appears on a reality television programme be by force of law disbarred from seeking public office? Absolutely. I'm with you as well that I've never watched this programme. I never intend to. Um, and actually, that also ties in with this ch- TV channel, GB News, 
news, which um, people around the world may not be aware of, that <coughs> no one here watches. Um, so that may be another reason why um, this, you know, this is a, uh, a lot of fuss about nothing. And, and Nigel Farage is an odious character. Uh, and uh, I would go out of my way to avoid him, actually. Well, to Kenya now, where the tailors retained by members of parliament are facing a busy Christmas. The Speaker of the House, Moses Wetangula, has decreed that henceforth only proper business attire is permissible parliamentary rig. The Speaker's dander seems to have been especially inflamed by members appearing in the chamber wearing either traditional African attire or the calendar suit. The short-sleeved safari jacket and matching trousers associated with former Zambian President Kenneth Kaunda and of which current Kenyan President William Ruto is notably fond. Um, Nadine, you spend a great deal of time uh, in Westminster. You will be therefore very familiar with the sartorial habits of British members of Parliament. Where are you on this? How smartly should people dress before entering a parliamentary chamber? So I think the rules for the the, the British uh, chamber is men have to wear a tie, I think, and a shirt and a jacket. And basically, that's the tie. Re- the tie requirement has been eased out. I did oh, look this it? up. Oh, yeah. okay. Was that might might have been after one particularly hot summer? But I, yeah. they, they they do have to wear. Basically, as a woman, I f- I find actually the dress code is actually quite good for us because I I don't actually have to think too hard mm. about what I'm wearing. But men, I think, have to wear a suit jacket. I think that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and a shirt, and they they have to dress quite smart. I think ultimately, no, no jeans, t-shirts, sandals, or trainers, or scarves, or large badges disp- displaying brand names. And the tradition of the house is that decorations, medals, and uniforms are not worn. Yeah. So, and I think that also applies to the press gallery because I, mm. I I think we, I've been told in the past that I couldn't turn up in trainers or whatever. Um, but I mean, I, I I think it's good to have some kind of smartness to it, but I, I don't know. On one hand, I think if I saw a, a kind of a, a streaming link of Parliament and everyone was sitting there in tracksuits, whatever, <laughs> feel a bit, I don't know, I feel a bit maybe a, like it was kind of a, ref, a bad reflection of where our democracy was at. At the flip side, I don't think forcing people to wear, like, you know, I, I just don't think over-policing. I think smart casual is fine. Anything upwards from smart casual. If someone wants to turn up in a bow tie and tailcoats, whatever, they, they can they can do that. I just think, you know, have like a kind of chill baseline and then work away. <coughs> don't give Jacob Rees more ideas. Um, <laughs> there, there was a row about this recently in the United States, of course, uh, Stephen. Senator John Fetterman uh, was in the habit of turning up wearing such things as, as baggy shorts and a hoodie, which, frankly, I wouldn't go to the shops in, never mind, <laughs> uh, never mind the US Senate. I mean, it, it is a weird thing. Instinctively, I, I flinch a little bit at dress codes myself, but there's also the, come on, you are here passing the laws by which a nation will be governed, make a bit of an effort. Yeah, and I would agree with that. What I find most extraordinary about this story, actually, in Kenya, is is not allowing people to wear their traditional tribal clothing. Um, because, you know, and then, and then they say, oh, but we want to have a national dress. Well, you've already got a number of national dresses around the country. This this, this um, is a weird one. There was a previous case I looked up in 2003 where three Kenyan MPs trying to make a point about this turned up wearing basically traditional uh, African robes. I'm unfamiliar with the technical term, but I saw the pictures. They looked absolutely smart. I mean, they were they were well-pressed. They were well-turned out. Um, and they were slung out by the Speaker for not being appropriately attired. Which, I mean, that strikes me as extraordinary because, I mean, to take an example very close to my heart um, I know you don't see many Scottish MPs either in Westminster or in Edinburgh turning up in the kilt but um, I can't imagine them being thrown out because the kilt is the national dress of Scotland I feel like I've definitely seen 
Ian Blackford wearing a kilt in Parliament before. Yeah, but there's no way that hasn't happened. Yeah, yeah, and he's not been thrown out. He's not been thrown out. I mean, can you imagine the absolute field day the SNP would have with (laughs) the Speaker kicked out someone from wearing a kilt? Well, I think everyone should just dress up like they're dressed up in (laughs) (laughs) Comic-Con. Dressed as their favourite comic book character. But there there was another test case uh, about traditional costume in New Zealand more recently. In 2021, uh, Wari Watiti, who's an MP representing the Maori Party, was thrown out of Parliament for not wearing a tie. Instead, he wore a Teonga pendant, which is, I think, usually made of jade. It's a, a, a ceremonial totem that he wore around his neck. Uh, he said, I will adorn myself with the treasures of my ancestors and remove the colonial noose around my neck so that I may sing my song. Now, he may have oversold it somewhat there, Nardine, but there, there's a point to be made there, isn't there? Yeah, I, I don't see the logic of kind of policing kind of particularly if it's indigenous dress in a in a place of lawmaking and democracy i think it's actually really nice thing to see that kind of manifestation of a, a, a nation's heritage at the heart of the democracy. I think if someone's turning up in baggy shorts and a trackie you know, or trackies or a hoodie or whatever that's a separate issue, that's more casual kind of dress issue but I think traditional dress, you know, I, I don't I don't, I don't see why there, there would be a problem with that. Maybe, maybe we should get our MPs dressing up as Morris dancers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we, we did want to finish by asking you both in turn if either of you have ever been, I will ask you first Stephen, uh, thrown out of or disbarred from anywhere for being incorrectly attired and whether angst about that haunts you to this day? Never thrown out of somewhere, but I can think of two occasions when I've turned up and thought, oh, I'm actually overdressed. One was in <laughs> Moscow uh, about 12 or 15 years ago. I'd had the invitation which said black tie, so, you know, dinner jacket, smart, and when I get invitation dinner jacket i do wear the kilt with um and i thought well it's really serious so if you really want to go is there a dl tartan oh there is yes yeah i'm sure there is so wearing the dl tartan with the dl also with the plaid over the shoulder which is really sort of really um the, the 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 top and I turned up and I hadn't got the second email and everyone else was in jeans and T-shirts. <laughs> so that was slightly slightly awkward. The, the second one actually was the Monocle Christmas party last year when I turned up looking Christmassy, I felt, and people were in jumpers, not even Christmas jumpers and jeans, because jumpers because it was cold. But um, uh, I got some rather funny looks at that. Um, but I stayed at the party. It was a very good party. See, I, I still seethe slightly at the memory of uh, some of the, the less salubrious Sydney pubs of my youth, which would not let you in unless you were wearing leather shoes. And I, 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 it's, it's hard to explain what these pubs were like to a modern <laughs> British audience. But given the general decorum and deportment of the patrons, what their shoes were made out of really should have been the least of the bouncer's worries. Um, N- Nardine, have you, have you ever been told, no, you're not coming in looking like that? I don't think I have, actually. I think the only time I can think of, of turning up in the wrong dress code is, like, the nightmares of forgetting it's an un-uniform day at school. <laughs> turning up in uniform and everyone's not wearing uniform and it's just the worst feeling ever. And you, you're just kind of like, I just fuck, a complete idiot. And then you take your blazer off and you try and make yourself kind of fit in a little bit more. But it's obvious you've forgotten it's an un-uniform day. So that's the only time I can think of that I've turned up in the wrong 
now I've said that, I'd probably do a massive faux pas or something in the coming months, but yeah. Nadine Bachelor Hunt and Stephen DL, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show to Singapore, where the largest global awards event for architects has concluded its first day. This is the annual three-day World Architecture Fair. It is back at Singapore's Marina Bay Sands after nearly a decade in Europe and or online during the pandemic. Lillian Fawcett was at WAF for us today and sat down with its programme director, Paul Finch. Lillian asked him what has changed about the festival since Paul founded it in 2008. Well, in some ways, it hasn't changed very much. The basic format of the festival is a huge awards programme with live presentations by all the shortlisted architects and designers in front of both delegates and international juries. And that is really the same format that we've been using since 2008. Um, We overlay that with a conference, with thematic conference uh, elements, um, building visits, networking events. So the format hasn't changed very much. I think what has changed is the kind of issues and concerns that architects and designers have today, which I think were beginning to emerge at that time, but which are much stronger now, particularly in relation to issues such as environmental design, climate and carbon, and some of the social equity issues of ageing and health, particularly since COVID, which have changed the context in which um, architects and designers work. I definitely want to come back later to what you think some of the most kind of pressing issues in architecture and design are at the moment. But just sticking with the festival itself for now, is there anything you're particularly excited about this year? Well, we're excited to be back in Singapore. I think the quality of the entries is well up to standard, so that's always good to see. And I think the we've noticed an increase in delegate visitors from Asian and Australasian countries, which is very welcome. Fortunately, we don't seem to be losing too many of people for whom the journey is a bit longer um, from different parts of the world. Um, So I think the um, theme this year is a very interesting one. Our thematic conference is is based on on the word catalyst. And I think it's sometimes ignored the, 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 the number of drivers which may influence or help to determine a design strategy, an attitude to design. What is it that gets the juices flowing for architects and designers? Is it simply the client's brief? I don't think so. It could be the site, it could be the intellectual challenge, it could be the social issues involved. So I think as a theme, it's a very interesting one. And a huge part of WAF is, of course, the awards. And there's a huge range of categories from best office space to best educational space. Why is it important to you to make the awards such a focal point of the event each year? Well, when we were conceiving of the festival, Um, We had to think to ourselves, would architects from around the world go to an event if it was just a conference? And we thought, not really, because there are plenty of conferences. And we wanted something which would be open to all architects. And actually, that's quite rare in an awards scheme where where it's global and where you have these um, kind of multi-categories. I mean, I think we've got 43 categories in total. The other thing, of course, which is pretty much unique to us in architecture is this live judging procedure. 
clearly we can't visit 500 or so buildings around the world. But what we can do is get their architects and in the case of interiors, get the designers to talk about or to present their project and why it is what it is and to do so live rather than the usual thing with architectural awards is that people submit an entry. It's judged in secret and you never really find out what the judges thought about anything except the winner. At our event, you hear the judges talking about every single shortlisted entry. And of course, most architects, once they've left architecture school, don't usually see other architects presenting unless it's a big formal set-piece lecture. Here, they're seeing people presenting in 10-minute sort of bite-sized chunks. So it's an opportunity for architects to see how their contemporaries actually go about presenting work as well as the work itself. So that's that can be a bit of an education. Obviously, being back in Southeast Asia, I imagine is a kind of greater interest among Southeast Asian designers. Where is some of the most exciting projects in Southeast Asia coming from right now? Well, I think the major cities of Southeast Asia are facing the same challenges of intense traffic, huge population uh, increase, densification. And I think to, um, to cope with those challenges is pretty tough. And I think the more successful approaches, and Singapore would be one example of that, is that you've got to remember that um, when you make a building, you're taking a piece of the earth. (laughs) I mean, literally and metaphorically. So the question is, if we're going to live in increasingly dense and increasingly high-rise urban environments, how do we incorporate nature, which we used to take for granted at a ground level in the horizontal city? How do we replicate that in the vertical city? And I think the smart designs are incorporating much more nature into their buildings, Singapore being a good example, roof, ter- you know, roof gardens, terraces, balconies full of planting. And ones that face bigger challenges are ones that are rapidly using up their natural resources and putting buildings all over them without any attempt to replace the nature that's being removed so I think you can make comparisons between the strategies of of different cities and then I suppose finally it's worth noting that the drive to create new super cities is not going away the new Jakarta being an obvious example Um, one city as a result pretty much of climate change becoming more difficult to operate as a capital city so create a new one And same thing with Cairo. The question then becomes, well, if we're designing new cities or the Naon project in Saudi, how different are they going to be to what we already have? Is it more of the same or is it going to be more of something completely new? That was Paul Finch speaking to Lillian Fawcett at the World Architecture Festival in Singapore. You can hear more of their conversation on an upcoming episode of Monocle on Design or in this week's edition of our Monocle Minute on Design newsletter. That's all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Nadine Bachelor-Hunt and Stephen DL. The show was produced by Vincent McAvenny and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 